0: Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher. From marketing to licensing, editing to writing, and even creating superheroes for the Marvel Universe, Fabian Nicieza has seen and done it all. This lifetime comic book fan, who you may know from creating characters like Domino, Shatterstar, and Silhouette, has also written for some of our favorite books: X-Men, Thunderbolts, Cable, Nomad, and so many more. He even has a featured story in this year's Marvel's Voices Community That Is Number One, coming out this month. Fabian is now a comics writer and a novelist, but he started his career at Marvel as a manufacturing assistant. At the time, his job focused on Marvel Life's and Children's books for Fisher Price, so it wasn't quite what he wanted to be working on. Ultimately, he wanted to make comics. So he quickly made moves, working first in promotions and advertising for Marvel and writing Marvel comics on the side. He soon moved on to editing licensed comics like Barbie, Rin and Stimpy, and even Kid and Play. But that's enough for me. Let's hear from the man himself, Fabian Nicieza. You are like a real ginormous comic book fan. And I love asking folks, you know, when was the first time you remember picking up, reading and falling in love with a comic book?
1: Well, the first time I remember comic books was before I even came to this country. So I probably between the ages of three and four and a half. I distinctly remember a magazine in Argentina called Antiojito y Antifas. It was two characters. Uh, I was four and a half when we came here in 1966. And one of the first things my brother and I recognized in the streets of New York and Queens at the corner, you know, kiosk newsstand were comic books. And it wasn't until about a year later that a friend of my brother's in elementary school saw that my brother had Batman or Superman comics, or he might've said it. And the, the kid said, you don't want to be reading those. You want to be reading these cool ones. And these cool ones was Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. And my brother Desperately wanting to be cool, as if anyone who read comics back then was cool, um, asked my parents the next time we we wanted to get some comics if we can get these other ones. And we got. And I distinctly do remember 1967. My brother starting to get Captain America, Fantastic Four, Spider Man, some of the great Stanley, Jack Kirby, Cap, and FFs, and Stanley and John Romita, Spider Mans.
0: You started getting into comics through your brother, obviously, at a very key time, right? Like, this was a shift into the 70s, right? Like, yeah. the late 60s into the 70s, mid-70s, you were seeing how comics were being influenced more internationally. Like, it had gone from being, and it still kind of was until the 80s and 90s, you had to be in New York or you had to be know somebody in New York, but there was a different flavor I would say, just because of the types of folks who were getting into comics who probably like you picked them up when they were kids and were like, oh, I want to do this. I have to do this job. I want to create these stories.
1: Yeah, I am in hindsight because I've had to talk a lot about my own growing up here and my own writing specifically in discussions about my two recent novels. A lot of that is introspective and looking back in a way that I don't usually And to me, there were two like seminal foundational sort of moments for me. I always felt like I was kind of the other I was slightly on the other side of the safe American white caucasian border but I wasn't so far to the other side that I couldn't very easily on a daily basis acclimate if I didn't tell you what my name was you may not look at me funny you know when my parents tried to talk to someone in a retail store and their accents were so heavy and you, I'd see the the store employee's eyes roll you know that's when I would feel it but I can't even Begin to pretend that I had to really struggle with my ability to acclimate to this country. I just understood the struggle. So, the two things for me that were seminal I realized that Marvel had published a comic book without the comics code stamp of authority when I bought Amazing Spider Man. <laughs> My brother and I both realized there was something weird about that. And I realized it was because it was the content of the story. And I was only about eight years old. But that drug story that Stan published with, with Gil Kane, that was a clear, defining message that these comics can tell stories that matter. Okay. The other thing that really made a difference for me in hindsight was they advertised Luke Cage coming out in Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, coming out in the bullpen bulletins and I was a 12 year old kid a suburban kid in New Jersey I I'm, I think of myself as tan I saw the bullpen bulletins and I go oh that guy looks pretty cool and then I saw the first issue cover which for me is one of my top five favorite covers ever uh, I mean John Ramita just absolutely channeled a cool crime noir black exploitation kind of super fly movie on a comic book cover and I bought the book and I remember my brother going what are you buying that for we weren't big fans of George Tuska and I was like "It just kind of looks cool to me it looks cool and what it meant mattered to me I thought it was incredibly interesting that they made the choice to go all in on, on creating this character, promoting this character, and trying to make the character work for an audience that, that at the time, quite frankly, was probably you know 80% Caucasian, right? And they were trying to do it. And it made me again realize, it started to make me understand that you can take chances in the stories you tell. You can decide to show different people in these stories Because there are different people reading them, and everyone's got to get something out of it. And if you look at my writing from the very beginning, from the very first assignment I had, which was Cyforce in the New Universe books, I've always tried to incorporate the word diversity before diversity was even in the English dictionary, (laughs) before diversity was even a word. I was trying to incorporate it. And it's a very selfish reason, quite honestly, because it made for better stories. So it's been ingrained in me as a reader and then as someone who wanted to write from childhood to show the reality of what life looks like when you're walking down the street.
0: So I want to take a step back because one of the things I think that was happening in the 70s and the 80s you know, Regardless of who the main names were, a lot of the artists were also shifting. The makeup of the bullpen at that time, in the 70s and 80s, was actually in its own way, culturally shifting, right? You were having new Asian American artists, new Filipino artists. You were having some of your first Black artists. We've had Black artists for a long, 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 long while. But you know, working on superhero comics, yeah. you were having more Black artists come in.
1: Yes, the creative balance started to shift. But a lot of that is not necessarily something that is done with the thought in mind that we have to have more inclusion in our art base or our writer base. Um, we, we need to we need a lot to, of
0: it came from a lot of it is just necessity. Job.
1: A lot of it is necessity. And the major reasons for the influx of Filipino artists in the mid seventies was because of that. The major influx of South American artists in the late eighties and early nineties once again was that there were more companies publishing more comics, there was more need for creative staff and FedEx happened. FedEx happening changed the way we did business. Being able to ship packages faster as opposed to through regular mail made it far more logical to be able to hire an artist in Brazil, to be able to h- hire an artist in Spain, because the time delay of getting them the work was crunched into just two days or three days instead of seven to ten.
0: But with these pages, you also got a little bit of inspiration, right? Like you can't have an artist from another country you know, without getting a little bit of some of that culture.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. But Angelique, that's inspiring readers who see it. And it's inspiring some creators who see it. Other creative talent in the countries and, or areas from which new creative talent is, is percolating see a viable opportunity for themselves to have meaningful employment and get a chance to draw a comic for Marvel or for DC or for Pacific or for Eclipse in the 80s or anyone, right? And that increases the talent pool which again is vitally important as well when there are that many companies publishing that many comics on a regular basis you need you need to always be finding new talent.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think yes it's influencing the readers and yes it's influencing people in those countries but those people are the creators of the future, right? Yes, yes. Those people who are reading comics in the 50s and the 60s and 70s are now the same folks who are making those comics now.
1: And I think it has that mentality that you just discussed has definitely bled its way in many good ways to the staff itself. The influx of younger editors and assistant editors and associate editors over the last 10, 15 years, they come into the mix with an idea in mind of the kinds of books they'd like to see, and those kinds of books are more than just directed at one specific demographic and one style of art. I think that that really has actually worked its way now through the totality Of the mainstream industry, because once it began to affect the choices and the approach that editors in the offices wanted to make, then it was going to affect the publishing program, which in turn, domino effect was going to reach out to different readers in different formats and different places other than just your local comic shop, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Well, Okay. so I want to take a little bit of a step back because you've had a pretty incredible career. I want to talk about your Marvel origin story because you started off working in manufacturing. You go into being an advertising manager and at the same time you were writing, you were editing. Talk to me about how do you get started at Marvel?
1: I interviewed at Marvel NDC right out of college. Um, I was second runner up for both jobs. And that was 1983, so I, I took the first job I could get, which was Berkeley Publishing, which is a paperback book company in Manhattan. A friend on the company softball team had a coworker who had a sister who was working at Marvel who was looking to hire an assistant. It was to be her assistant in the manufacturing department of Marvel Books. But Marvel Books was not what you think Marvel Books is today. Marvel Books was nothing but Fisher-Price licensing deal. Coloring books, sticker books, activity books for a Fisher-Price license. That's not a job I really wanted. It wasn't my interest to be in manufacturing, but I wanted to get my foot in the door. And within four months there was a job opening in the promotions department to be the assistant of the man who got the job instead of me in 1983. And it was a pay cut too. I took a $500 a year pay cut because I wanted to be... In the promotions department, because I th- had a feeling that that was where I was going to get a chance to make my bones. If I was going to get a chance to build something within the company, it was going to be through the promotion and advertising, because that's what I went to school for, and that's what I wanted to do. Plus, it would get me a chance to flex some writing muscles, too. I became Marvel's advertising manager. And my job was to sell Marvel Comics within Marvel Comics, i.e. house ads, and to the direct market stores that needed it. So posters, co-op ads, sell sheets, promotional giveaways, all of that stuff from 87 to 90-something.
0: And then the 90-something is when things get really interesting. That's when I moved
1: over to editorial, Um. which really was strange. (laughs) Uh.
0: Okay, because you go from Marvel's advertising manager to comics, right? But I want to make it clear to folks who are listening... Marvel has a long track record of licensing comics, right? So I want to be clear. What we're about to say isn't new, but something happened in the 90s with licensing. There was a focus on the licensing, I think, that was a little bit different. And for folks who love these deep cut comics, like Barbie and Rin and Stimpy and Tech World, and two of my favorite that I would love to talk to, particularly because they had all black creative teams Kid and Play, and Meteor Man, both the adaptation and the limited series, all kind of fell under than your purview. Talk to me a little bit about how you go from Marvel's advertising manager to now you're editing licensed books.
1: Tom DeFalco, who's the editor-in-chief, and Mark Reynolds, who's the executive editor, asked me to attend the assistant editor's meetings that they had on a weekly basis, both for two reasons. One, they wanted me to absorb the editorial approach and training that Marvel was trying to instill in the assistant editors, and B, they wanted the assistant editors to get to understand the responsibilities of the promotions and sales departments towards the company itself. And a lot of the things we had to deal with, a lot of the things that sales and and promotion had to deal with usually got funneled through the assistant editors. So I got to know all the assistant editors better. They got to know me better. Tom had asked me twice to be an editor, and I had turned them down both times because I really enjoyed the job I had. I really did. It was my favorite job I've ever had. was Marvel's advertising manager. And Mark Grunwald in the hallway said... He said, he's going to ask you again tomorrow. If you say no, he won't ask you again. Three strikes and you're out. And I said, okay. So that gave me 24 hours at least to think about it. And the next day, Tom asked me if I would do it this time. And I said, yeah, I'll do it now. Um, But I don't want to do superhero books because I'm writing too many of them. I said, I want to do different stuff. So Tom offered me the licensed books. And I knew they were not a problem, but I knew that it, it meant more work. I knew it was a harder job. To edit the licensed books is always a harder job.
0: Say, say why.
1: Uh, because there's a lot more fingers in the pie. Yeah, You have to run a plot, pencils, a script, and a finished book without the colors through a licensor for approval. It often requires multiple corrections on a given issue, depending on the kind of licensor that they are.
0: And I want to be clear to folks who are listening, you were also freelance writing at this time, yes, correct? Yes, and that was
1: off staff, Marvel... Back then, Marvel used to allow staff personnel to sell their stories and to write for the company. I had started to sell my stories in 87, and I also had done a truckload of inventory stories, which back then, every editorial office had to have a completed book in the drawer for all their titles. Penciled, inked, lettered, colored, finished issue. Right. Because if the schedule broke down, you slotted an inventory story into it real quick, because back then our newsstand sales were very important to us, not just our direct sales. And if you missed your window on the newsstand, you didn't ship to the newsstand that month. And newsstand is 7-Elevens and grocery stores and drug stores and convenience stores where comics used to be sold that they never are anymore.
0: You make a good point. Right. Because that's why I say the 90s is a special time. Right. Because the 90s is also when we went almost 100% direct market. Well, 100% direct market. Pretty much 100% direct market, yeah. 100% direct market, right? Talk to me a little bit about what it was like being the editor for these licensed comics. Because when you look at folks like Bertram Hubbard or Chuck Frazier, Chuck who worked on Kid and Play... And Bertram, who worked on Meteor Man, like some of these guys, this is like their first major project. Yeah. So you're also um, getting this opportunity to get folks in on like their first major projects at the time.
1: Well, it was a combination of reasons. First and foremost, I, I wanted to hire creative talent that I thought could best reflect and represent the books I was doing. And I thought, if I'm doing kid and play, I want black sensibilities on it, period, because the kid and play movies and the kid and plays music has black sensibility to it. So Meteor Man was kind of the same way. It was simply me wanting to both develop new talent Give opportunities to people who were trying to break in, like Robert Walker, and just wasn't quite there so that a Spider-Man editor or Marvel Comics Presents editor may not be ready to hire him because there's stuff about his art that is a little wonky. Well, what better way to work out your kinks and improve than by by getting a chance to work on four to six issues on something? And we knew Meteor Man wasn't going to sell X-Men levels, and that's fine because you're using the talent in a different way for a different reason. I thought both were good books, quite frankly. I like I both quite a They were a bit. great
0: books. And for people who don't realize, that's the first time we saw, because it's technically the first black superhero movie, yep. it's the first time we also saw the adaptation of a black superhero movie into comics. And then, because of the decision you made, there was an all-black creative team. Which, to be honest, you really didn't have a full person of color team.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when you're in the sausage grinding factory, you're not really that aware of how the different sausages are being consumed by the public. You know, you don't know you're, you're looking at the mail and you're looking at sales, but you're not thinking, does an all black creative team mean something to the readers? I thought it meant something to the book. And I was trying to do it for the sake of the book. Now, of course, in hindsight, you see that it could affect someone at age 12 or 10, just the same way that seeing Luke Cage in the bullpen bulletins affected me. I forgot to mention how interesting it was for me when I first saw White Tiger appear I was a George Perez fan since before he even took over Avengers. And part of it was seeing the name George Perez and realizing, okay, he's Hispanic and, and he's drawn from Marvel. Cool. And then understanding that White Tiger was the first Latin American superhero in the comics. And I see it so much more now that I'm older. And I respect it so much more now that I've talked to so many readers who are now 40 years old and say, you have no idea how important Rage and Speedball's friendship was to me when I was 10 years old. You know, you really get a greater appreciation and understanding of what that means, how that matters.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you being able to create characters, right, because you've had a hand in creating Shadow Star, Domino. As a woman of color, like Silhouette being on a young team like the New Warriors, like she's a really amazing character. Yes, yeah,
1: she's Silhouette really came about because I wanted to quickly begin developing Dwayne Taylor's backstory. Dwayne Taylor was Night Thresher, he was the leader of the team, and the way to do that is to shade his past, to throw some colored conflict into that, make you realize that that it's not black and white. There's gray in there, plus, I had New Warriors pretty well thought through and planned, and I knew that Silhouette and Midnight's Fire, who were introduced in issue number two, were going to be Cord's children. And I knew that I wasn't going to be revealing that for almost 25 issues. So I, I wanted to establish them quickly in order to create not ties between the characters, but relationships within the characters. And I thought that she would make a really good pairing with Dwayne. She could be his conscience, but... There's some secrets about her. There's some hidden things about her. So how good a voice is she in Dwayne's ear? I wanted to have that be a part and parcel of the mix. Yes, I was always trying to get color into the book, diversity-wise. I was always trying to establish characters' religions, characters' home lives, characters' class, their financial statuses, not just their skin color. I wanted to try to establish a little bit of everything for them so that you could see where we all overlap, cross over what unites us we are not of walls, we are of tangled, interweaving threads, right? That was New Warriors to me, period, from the very beginning, you know, and I endeavored for the 53 issues I was on that book to always keep that in mind. Just look at the cover to New Warriors 51, which came out in 1994, and you're going to see... Just about every color, every race, every religion, you're even going to get a blue Atlantean in there, okay? And you're going to get mutants and humans, and you're going to get black and white and brown and Asian. You're going to get a mix of everything, because that's what I wanted the book to be. It was a conscious decision, but again, like I mentioned earlier, it was a conscious decision born as much out of selfishness. I get better story material that way. I get better character that way. I get better character interaction.
0: What I'm very curious about, you know, you came over to the United States when you were very young. Your parents' culture is from Argentina. Your culture is of a, not even a first-generation American, but an immigrant to America that grew up in New York in the 90s. And that was probably the most internationally infused place in the entire world at that time, right? Because you are seeing different shades, different languages, different religions. And that is what... Anyone who reads New Warriors will see.
1: And I appreciate that if it's there, it's a combination of both conscious and subconscious. um, And that's good. That's the best way to do it, I think. To me, the the city's always been a part of me. It is reality. It is what it is. That level of diversity, that level of cultural overlapping and intermingling, uh, hiding from it or being ignorant are not excuses. It's just ludicrous to me. It's just so mind-numbingly ignorant. To me.
0: Well, and I think that's a great segue because there is this portrait of Marvel that reflects ebbs and flows with increases of diversity that are impacted by stuff like FedEx with stuff like the scanner and stuff yeah. like yeah. Photoshop and how these things subtly brought in a more international impact and influence because comics could get bigger. And then those stories impacting another generation that's now making the stories of today What has it been like to see comics evolve since you've picked up your first comics in the 60s?
1: It's been both really, really satisfying and rewarding and incredibly frustrating and vexing at the same exact time. The satisfying part of it is an expanded opportunity for an expanded creative base that tells expanded stories of a wider range and variety. Okay, the art styles that are employed now and the demographic targets are wider than they were when I was working between 85, 95 on staff and freelance. Right. It has expanded beyond a strong white male teen demographic. That's great. The frustrating part is when both sides of the coin today fail to be able to communicate about what each is saying. That the two sides can't seem to understand that the divide is as much a lack of empathy and understanding that not all comics have to be for you. Just because they all were when you were 10 years old doesn't mean they all have to be for you now. But here's some stuff you're really going to like. We're doing XYZ. You know, my frustration is with the readership who complains, much of which, unfortunately, we're. 10, 12, 13, 14 years old when they were reading my stuff in the early 90s, which saddens me that this is their takeaway 30 years later of that material. The other thing that really frustrates me is that the opportunity to have expanded the platform by which We Tell Stories existed 30 years ago, they have to tell stories on platforms other than the direct market comic shop. You know, and as a guy who stood on stage at the distributor meeting doing Marvel's presentation for an entire day to the distributors trying to tell them why it was important that they should really try to get their retail accounts to sell Barbie comics because we need to have new readers and getting girls into the store would be a great way to have teenage girls reading X-Men. And and to the guy who had to go to retailer meetings where literally retailers said, I don't want girls in my store, you know. I used to have hair, Angelique. I used to have a lot of hair. (laughs) Guess when it all fell out.
0: Well, and I think it's interesting because you have worked on all these projects. You've worked on Barbie, but you've also worked Doctor Strange, West Coast Avengers, Daredevil, like anyone who would understand the value of getting in new readers.
1: There was a time when when both Barbie and Barbie Fashion each had 40,000 plus in subscriptions. Okay, it was Marvel's number one and two books in subscription. It superseded X Men like a bullet.
0: One of the reasons that we love having Marvel's voices is because it does give opportunities for those artists in the same way you were doing that. And we've had so many conversations about the cover art program where we've gotten amazing folks like Tarin Clark, all of these other folks who have incredible skills. like a Luciano Vecchio, right? Like Luciano had some of his first work on covers and then he came and he wrote and drew his first solo piece in Marvel's Voices and now he's doing an Iceman comic on Infinity Comics. I feel like this is also really important on an international scale in bringing folks in. Do you feel like those international influences seem to only have made comics better?
1: Yeah, I look, I... Making better qualitatively in terms of story content, character development, and art, of course, absolutely. The influx of talent today from all over the planet is no different at all than the influx of talent of Filipino artists in the early 70s, allowing Marvel to increase their product output exponentially as a result of having more good talent available if you're an editor at a company why wouldn't you want more good talent available if you're a reader of comics why wouldn't you want more good talent available to tell stories so our global communications FedEx turning into scanners turning into digital artwork turning into the art being delivered to an editor one minute after it's done boy that would have been nice back in 1991 Um, (laughs) all of that is part and parcel to trying to always improve the industry in all ways, not just in terms of who it's being tailored to creatively, but in the outlets where you can sell it, the formats in which you can sell it in, and the diversity, of the talent that you can employ to tell different kinds of stories.
0: I love it. Well, and you've touched so many Marvel characters. Do you feel like your background being born not in the States and moving to the States and having parents who spent the majority of their lives, not in the States, were you able to bring any of those influences in? Do you feel like that was part of your writing, still part of your writing in the way you see storytelling?
1: I, I think um, ultimately more than anything, whatever differentiation my odd name might have caused back in 1985 was mitigated by the fact that I was working in the office when I started selling my work. So if I were trying to come in from the outside, my odd name might have created a little bit of resistance. But because I was on the inside, it wasn't a non-factor, right? The aspect of my work that has always been brushed with that is really the underdog mentality. Yeah. I think that being an immigrant to this country and growing up in the apartment complex when all my school friends lived in the housing complex and having parents who spoke very broken English, what it always did for me is give me an underdog mentality that I was going to to work harder, I was going to strive harder, I was going to try to be smarter, not necessarily to fit in, but if necessary to bowl my way through, you know? and it's always colored my aggressive personality it's always colored aspects of my lovely arrogance it's it's always been a part and parcel of me and that's absolutely a chip on the shoulder you know immigrant story kind of a scenario my brother doesn't have the same personality as me he doesn't have the same thinking i do it's interesting that we i have that more than he does by far you know and i'm not 100% sure why but i do and it's always affected the way I approach my work because I always the thing about superhero stories is that in some ways they're the ultimate underdogs because they always have to triumph over adversity. Whether it be physical or emotional, they have to triumph over adversity. They have to get knocked down and get back up again. True life concussions notwithstanding, think about the amount of times superheroes get knocked unconscious, right? And they, <laughs> they, they got to get back up again the next day, and they got to fight a villain who's already beaten them once, right? So, so I, I think that I naturally gravitated towards superheroes because they gave me aspirational hope that you can triumph over the obstacles that are placed in front of you. That's why I feel I've always been a really good superhero writer in that capacity. Not in all capacities, but in that capacity. The ability to create stories that provide aspirational hope that today may not be great, but tomorrow could be better. And that's what I've always tried to apply to my work.
0: Oh, I have so much more insight on Night Thresher right now. <laughs> I feel like you wrote a lot of yourself into Dwayne Taylor.
1: I, You know, I, I have, and I didn't really realize it as I was doing it. It really took me a while to realize it more. I always wrote about things that were happening in my life. And I I took that external influence and I internalized it. And then I kind of regurgitated into the stories. Characters having cancer like Deadpool and Diamond Lil and Alpha Flight were the result of of my mother-in-law having cancer when my wife and I were much younger. Little things like that I I always threw into my work. I've become far more aware of it now that I've been doing the promo stuff for my two novels they're fictional mysteries but so much of my life experiences and and the people i know and the friends i have little bits and pieces have all been kind of taken floating in the air and then they coalesce into characters or they coalesce into story points and because i've been talking so much about my books in the last couple of years, it's made me more reflective of my comic work than I used to be. Mm. I was a bull in a china shop, man. I I had look, I was writing six monthly books for Marvel and I had a full time job at Marvel and I had a three hour commute round trip. I didn't weather fools too easily and I and I had deadlines Mm. in my sights. Every single day, right? So I wasn't very contemplative. I wish I had been. I probably would have been both a better writer and a better person, but I I wasn't. (laughs) And now that I'm an old man, I get to be a little more contemplative and I get to think back a little more on what I was trying to do. What was subconscious? What was conscious? I've always been bucking the system and I always thought I was doing it just because I was a pain in the ass, but I realized I was doing it because I always had an internal need to shake things up within the framework of the structure I was working in. I was a really good Marvel employee. I was a good cog in the wheel, but I was a really cranky, squeaky cog, you know, and I liked being that.
0: This has really been an honor. Seriously, there are 20 billion more questions I'd love to ask you. I can't wait for folks to read your story and the brand new Marvel's Voices community. That is, I appreciate it.
1: I appreciate it too, Angelique. Thank you very much. It's a very enjoyable interview.
0: Thanks again to Fabian for coming on the show. You can read more from him on Marvel Unlimited, but also you can check out a brand new story from him in Marvel's Voices, Comunidades, number one, coming out on September 28th. You can go pre-order that like right now and make sure it's on your pull list. You can also check out the novels he mentioned, Suburban Dicks and The Self-Made Widow, wherever you get your books. Before we go, I want to introduce you to a few very special artists. You might remember my conversation with John Michael Ennis from episode one. We talked about the Marvel Stormbreakers program, which spotlights the best up-and-coming artists in the comic book industry. Yeah, I said it. The best. Well, we have a brand new class just announced this week. Starting with this episode, each week on Marvel's Voices, we're going to spotlight one or two stormbreakers from the 2023 class. This week, we're going to start with CF Fia.
2: My name is Carlos Fabian Villa Dominguez, and I am from Hermosillo, Sonora, Mexico. And I live in Mexico City right now. This is where I work from. It's a very similar story to all my colleagues working in comics right now, you know, the young kid that, that knows how to draw in school. My mom bought uh, comics for me when I was very small, and I started uh, as a Spidey fan reading the, the Spidey black suit, the Venom suit. I really didn't know English back then, so I, I looked at the, the translated comics that we that we had here in Mexico. But mostly I was looking at the pretty pictures. I mean, that was it. The art, that's, that's my hook. There was a time where I, where I stepped away from art because where I'm from in Hermosillo Sonora, there's not much of an art scene. And I really stopped doing art in my 20s when I was in, in college. I was going to be a graphic designer. Because that was the closest thing that I could get to be working, doing art. And then when I started to post my work online, I started to get like an opportunity to do commissions for uh, drawing that kind of character then and, and maybe doing um, concept art for a movie and an animation studio. And that's the thing that was like channeling my, my work towards that avenue, like doing art again, was, was fun and I was getting paid. That was the first steps towards getting opportunities from Marvel. I received information that there was going to be a portfolio review in Conque in Querétaro in 2017 and Ricky Purden and C.V. Cebulski were going to be there because they're friends with Umberto Ramos. So I had everything. I, I can speak English uh, decently. I had a background in film and animation, uh, concept art for 10 years. And, and so my design skills were really strong. I really knew that I could do really solid comic work if I really tried. It was a really awesome show. Uh, they gave me the, the marble test, the sample pages, the sample script. And so that's the time where I started working for them. so my work is influenced a lot by by movies uh, my my style is very cinematic and uh, my framing of the shots i try to to always uh, position the reader in a location so i try to make my art really um, easy to understand what's going on animation and film are really uh, what influenced me be it um, European style, American style, and also Japanese style animation. It's, it's, it's something that I always um, gets inside the page, yeah. I want the warmth and the flavor of my culture to seep into what I do. So I, I, I always try to put my characters feeling the joy of being a hero of being alive, to express the warmth of my culture into the warmth of our characters. As a Mexican, I can confirm that we party a lot and we enjoy living because we also make a party for our dead ones, no? like Dia de los Muertos. So we know that this thing we call life is a very short moment in time. So I want to transmit that joy of life to my characters in comics. And I, I think it gives more gravitas to know what they're fighting for. Being a part of something like this is is a notice for me that I'm going the right way, I'm, I'm doing something right. So, and it gives me a lot of motivation to keep going and doing it better. I just wanna say that I'm really, really thankful for for being in comics right now and, and and I'm trying my best to be a better artist and really make the readers joyful about the stories that they're reading because I'm, I'm also a fan. I'm really excited to keep working on comics uh, for as, as long as I can. And I'll see you on the pages.
0: And next up, we have Lucas Warnick.
3: Okay, hey, I'm Lucas Warnack, and I live in Brazil, Sao Paulo. My love for art began because of Disney, because of the Disney movies. And I watched The Little Mermaid. <laughs> and it blows my mind, and I fell in love with Ariel. And I remember that I told my mom, I want to do this, this, and I point to the TV. So I started to make draws of Ariel and Disney things. In my teenagerhood, I discovered the the comics, and I fell in love again, and yeah, that's when I started to love art and love comics. I think my first contact with comics was with X-Men Evolution, the TV cartoon show. I met the X-Men, and that was my first contact, and I was looking for the, the comics. Being a Brazilian, we had to transpass a lot of barriers. First of all, the language, but I think in my teenagehood the things start to look serious to me, like I want to do this like for the rest of my life, I want to draw. So I was looking for what I need to make to become an artist, study a lot, know other artists, no other Brazilian artist who worked for American market, and yeah, that was the beginning of all because the first sight was like, "Oh, that's impossible for me. A young artist who live in Brazil in a poor neighborhood like was something that was beyond my imagination, so, yeah, the first thing was need to put my feet on the ground and okay, what I need to do to take that place, you know? To describe my style, I think it's a mix of Art Nouveau, I think, with modern comics. (laughs) I don't know, I think that I have a lot of influence, of Disney influence on my work. It's like high culture fashion, I think, like something like that, yeah. It's something that changed a lot. Something that I'm starting to think recently about how my culture influenced my work, because we had the awesome richness culture here in Brazil, but we don't look at it like a cool thing. It's strange to say that, but we had this kind of delay thing about our own culture. So I'm really trying to change that For example, I really want to someday create another Brazilian character and I want to stories happening here. I'm really proud of my culture. I want to to make this to the world, you know? The Stormbreakers thing came in the moment that I was asking myself about my work and I'm good enough for this, I don't know, I don't feel it. it's... I was in a... I think the whole world was in a really bad mood, right? And the Storm Breaks came and was like, whoa, like, <laughs> was something extremely clear for me, like, no, you're doing the right thing, keep doing your work and... Keep doing the sacrifices and the things that you need to do for this. You came in the right time, and I really want to talk about the person whose dream in being a Marvel artist. It's possible. <laughs> it's super possible. You don't need to be in North American. You don't need to live in the United States. Just do your art, do your work, and. Keep believing yourself that it's possible. So here I am. <laughs> yeah, the proof.
0: <laughs> Would you believe that Lucas actually just started learning English five months ago? It's pretty incredible. And the redesign he mentioned so cryptically, that's Monica Rambeau's photon design. Yes, my fave, Monica Rambeau. The redesign was included with the announcement of the brand new series coming in December written by the incomparable Eve Ewing. Okay, so next week on Marvel's Voices, I'm welcoming two talented people who are no strangers to Marvel Podcast. Alejandro Lopez directed Marvel's Wolverine, La Larga Noche, and our second guest... Well, it's a surprise, and I can't wait to introduce them to you. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Crochet. Our Senior Manager of Audio Production and Development is Brad Barton. Our Production Manager is Larissa Rosen, and our Executive Producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Ynina.